Today's first scripture reading comes from the book of Samuel, Second uh, Samuel, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. After the king was settled in his place and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to secede you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men and with floggings inflicted by human hands. And the next reading is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And our first New Testament reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And now today's gospel reading. Mark six thirty four. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, last week, I traveled to Cincinnati to attend a conference for a national conference for Mennonites called Menocon. And there, there was a number of interesting, it was my very first Menocon, and so I engaged in a bunch of workshops and seminars. And one of them I uh, participated in was called uh, Nonviolent Direct Intervention. So perhaps in Mennonite language, that's uh, pacifist protesting. 
the speakers set up a scenario for partners to act out with one another. So I paired up with a young man who was sitting next to me, uh, and he found out he was from Oregon, Oregon, and he worked on a farm, and he had come to Menocon together with some youth as a youth sponsor, which means uh, that he was an adult leader accompanying youth attending the conference. And so uh, there was a situation that they set up for us, and uh, the speakers asked us to imagine a situation where one of us, in this case it would be me, where I had to kick a dog. And then the other, the other my partner would have to come and intervene. And so uh, I came up with a scenario in my mind, and I began kicking the dog, right? So dog, dog lovers, uh, please, you know, accept this uh, scene, okay? So kicking a dog. And, and then he runs up to me and says, hey, what are you doing? Stop kicking the dog. And then I replied, but the dog is, it's biting one of your youth. I don't know what to do. And he went, stop. He's like, oh, that's not what I expected. <laughs> okay, let's get the dog off. He jumped on the dog and wrestled it off. Like, we mind all of this, obviously. And as the speakers debriefed the group about the interaction, various people uh, shared about how they felt and how the, their initials changed once they found out, once they began interacting. Isn't that how it often works for us? We have an initial uh, expectation based on what we perceive and based on our experience. And often our actions are well-intended. Like my workshop partners, he saw me kicking a dog, so he wanted me to stop. But he, we had to find a different solution that uh, he originally did not expect. Doesn't God often work like that in our lives and in our world? And as we go through the texts of the lectionary this summer in the God's Transforming Justice series, we're often given an opportunity to see how the living God transforms our view of the world, our view of the nature of God, and sometimes even our sense of what is right. Scripture reshapes how we see the world in light of the truth of God. In today's lectionary readings, I'd like to draw attention to a theme that I see links these texts together. In the second Samuel reading, there's this king who longs to build a suitable dwelling place for God. The Jeremiah text points to a kind of king who does this building of a just and righteous world. And the New Testament texts give us glimpses into this king that God sends and the kind of home that God dwells in. So we'll walk through this in three steps. One is just build it. Second is a just king. And third, uh, when God's a good home for all. When God's at home, what does that look like? Just build it, a just king, and when God's at home, what does that look like? You know, at this point in the story in 2 Samuel, it tells the story of this successful king, David, and how he has established his rule after years of hardship and war. He has escaped personal death threats from the previous king, Saul, and he's fought off neighboring nations to establish this kingdom. And even more importantly, he has recovered the greatest artifact in the worship of God for God's people, the Ark of the Covenant. And so, and so when we come to 2 Samuel, and we read the first couple of verses, after the king had settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the Ark of God remains in a tent. We're told that he was settled in a palace, the Lord had given him rest, from his enemies. David recognized God's blessings on his life and on his people. The Lord God had carried him through all this difficulty. Life was good for King David, and he wanted to give God credit and honor where it was due. 
So he comes up with a plan to build a dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant. He wanted a place that was befitting of God's glorious presence. You know, in ancient times, uh, this was a common practice for kings to build a temple in honor of their gods, particularly in times of peace and success. Or perhaps in today's language, we could say that he wanted to use his privilege and his power for good. He saw that what seemed to be lacking in the world around him, he wanted to address the problem. He wanted to go ahead and just build it because he could. And Nathan the prophet supports David's idea when, he tells, when David tells Nathan. And here, Nathan probably has more of his advisor hat on, less than his prophet hat. Just like a good friend would do for you if you were musing with your friend saying, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm thinking of going back to school. Or, hey, I've been thinking about renovating our home. And you, if your supportive friend would probably say to you, say, hey, that's, that sounds like a great idea to build your career or to build your home. So go ahead, just build it. In David's mind, to do right by God was to build this temple to house the ark. He had the power, he had the inspiration, he had the means, he had good intentions. But he missed one very important detail. We discover that the Lord desires to build a different house for God's presence. You know, that night, the Lord speaks to Nathan, and he reminds him that God has never asked for a permanent dwelling place. Instead, God continues in verses 10 and 11 to say how God will be the one to build a home for God's people. God will give God's people rest. God will rise, raise up another successor, one of David's offspring, who will build a suitable dwelling place, a suitable home for God. Take a look at all these verses, and if you go into the Bible, you'll see it even more. Look at how many I will statements do you find in this passage. I will build. I will give the rest. I will raise up. Rather than humans building a worthy home for God, we find that it is God who covenants with David to do so. And this coming king will build an everlasting home and an everlasting kingdom. God is the one who will build it. Now, that doesn't mean that we as humans have no part in this process, in, build, in building a kingdom of justice and peace. But God is the initiator in this work. But we also find that there's another reason why David, with all of the success and all of the blessing upon his life, that why he could not do it. If we go to 1 Chronicles 22, it's the parallel account of this uh, passage in 2 Samuel. And we read that, we find the reason why God does not allow David to build a temple. We find that there is blood on David's hands. You see, despite the success of David's military conquest, the peace and the prosperity of Israel was secured through war and bloodshed. God wanted to build a, a man of peace to build a suitable dwelling place for, God, for a holy, righteous God, not a man of war with the blood of others on his hands. I think if we're honest with ourselves, could we perhaps see ourselves in King David's desire to just go ahead and build it? I know I can. When I see a need, I want to address it. When I see a problem, I want to fix it. If you're inclined like me, we might even want to say, I want to honor God with my actions. You know, at times we have the means and we might even have the power. And so we proceed with our plans, but we forget to inquire 
of God and how God wants us to proceed. We're eager to jump into action, but we forget to ask how God is at work in building a suitable dwelling place for God. And sometimes in our activity, we discover that all of our achievements and all of our successes are, are not always completely innocent. How many of us, if your parents have disciplined our children out of anger or out of frustration, just because we want a little bit of peace and quiet? Now we can tell ourselves that we love our children, which we probably do, and that we want the best for them, which we probably do. But in the heat of the moment, at that point, we really just want the best for ourselves. Can you just be quiet? Stop asking me. Or how many of us have shared a juicy tidbit about a coworker with our bosses? Now, we can tell ourselves or tell others that, you know, I, I'm really uh, uh, thinking about the, the team here, and I'm really thinking about the best for our company. But often it's about covering our butts or casting doubt on the abilities and character of a coworker. See, that line between selfishness and selflessness is often a little finer than we often like to think. The ends don't always justify the means. It's not always about good intentions. It's not always about what we think is best. This scene reminds us that we need another leader who builds as a man of peace. This text reminds us of the importance of hearing how God is at work in the work of God building God's kingdom. That's why we need a just king. Now, on this side of the story, you may know that this prophecy points immediately to David's son, Solomon, who comes after and builds this glorious kingdom of Israel into uh, an unprecedented blessing and wealth. And Solomon is the one who builds God's temple, not through uh, bloodshed, but through diplomacy and wisdom. He builds this glorious and beautiful temple that has never been reproduced again in history. And in his son Solomon, it would appear that God was faithful to his promise to David. But we find that this blessing, this glorious temple, does not last more than a generation. Within a generation, this glorious kingdom crumbled because of pride and ego and selfishness. There needed to be another kind of king that would come along and bring true righteousness, justice, and blessing. Now, several years ago, uh, we were spending time with some of Julia's family, and one of the aunts, her name is Auntie Kim, uh, we call her, was, once asked me out of the blue after we were chatting, you know, uh, after a meal, and she said, Andrew, where's home? And you know when you, someone asks you a question, you know that your answer is probably going to be wrong? That's kind of how I felt at that moment. You knew that the answer was going somewhere. The question she was asking was going somewhere. So, but me, with my logical you know, engineer brain, I said, well, my home is like Vancouver. She goes, yes, but Andrew, where is home? Uh, you mean the house where we live in on East 41st, where Ashley and Evan were born and grew up? She goes, yeah, that's home, but no, where is home for you? And she says, you know, home is wherever you and Julia are together. That's home. You know, my conversation with Auntie Kim reframed my idea of home. 
It was a particular insightful approach coming from a woman who had escaped Vietnam as a refugee with her guile and with her street smarts. She was able to you know, flee the country through other countries and eventually find a boat that would take her to Canada. Home had a much more deeper meaning for her. Home wasn't just her homeland where she was born. Home wasn't just a physical space where she slept at night and raised her kids. For her, home was this most important relationship in her life. And through that conversation, I began to see home differently. It was this relationship with Julia and myself as a married couple that began to be more important as home. Now, it's ironic that King David wanted to build a home for a homeless God. But this homeless God was always a wanderer with no fixed address except to be with God's people, to be in relationship with God's people. And this homeless God was, in, in David's eyes, we find the one who would actually end up building a home, not only for David, but for all of God's people. The living God would send another kind of king who would build another kind of home for us. Now we find that Jesus comes to build a dwelling place for God a very different way. Not through power and not through prestige, but through sacrifice. A true dwelling place for God was not to be a physical location, but to be a people. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he impacts this vision a bit further. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, uh, 19, uh, 21 and 22. In him, that's Christ, the whole building, is the idea of home, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We find that the building that God intends to dwell and bring peace upon is the church, the gathered people of God. And it is upon King Jesus, this, the cornerstone, that this home is built. We find that Jesus is the man of peace who builds his home, this home, not by shedding the blood of others, but we find is by shedding his own blood on the cross. Through Christ's atoning sacrifice, a true and living relationship is established between God and humanity. That, that possibility, that, is, that, that relationship is made possible through what Jesus has done. Those who have responded to Jesus the King's invitation to relationship with the living God and put their trust in this righteous Savior are joined in relationship with God to become a true dwelling place for God to live by God's Spirit. God makes us home in God's people through the work of Jesus the King. And this relationship is every human's true home. That's the story of Scripture. Now, so our work of justice and transformation in the world is built on this fundamental work of bringing people in relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. What does that look like, though? It's more than just a prayer that you pray, a prayer of confession. It's like, now I'm good with God. When God is at home with God's people, it's evidenced by these signs that God is at home. So what are those, some of those signs? You know, when, when you, with the lifting of travel restrictions, greater freedom secured by vaccinations and the summer that in, in full effect now, many of us are making travel plans or maybe you've traveled to join 
with us today. But vacation travel can also be a challenge. There's another challenge that comes with it. When we leave our home for a week or two weeks, we need to make sure that it looks like someone's still living there. So we make, we make sure our mail is picked up. We make sure the blinds may be open and the lights turn on and off during the day. We make sure someone feeds our pets and our plants. So what, to indicate, we do all these things to indicate that someone is home, even if someone really isn't. But what are the signs that God is at home with God's people? Now, in the Ephesians text, we see it again. When God is at home with God's people, people are reconciled. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes how the actions of Jesus the King bring reconciliation not only between a holy God and sinful humanity, but also through divided groups of people. In the Old Testament, uh, when, when God gave Moses the, uh, the Ten Commandments and instructed the, the, how this tent of meeting would be designed, there was only one division between the priests and the laity. Fast forward several generations, by Paul's day when he's writing this, architects of the temple had added barriers, additional barriers. Those who weren't Jews couldn't go past a certain point. Women couldn't go past a certain point. Now Paul insists that all of these barriers between God's people are abolished in God's true spiritual temple. What Jesus has done has broken down all of these barriers between humans with one another, but also with God. You know, other Jewish writers uh, spoke of God's people, that's, that is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God's temple. That's what they viewed God's people as. But only Paul and the other early Christians recognized this new temple included non-Jews. And at the time Paul was advocating for racial unity in Christ, Jews and Syrians were massacring each other in the streets of Caesarea. All this was going on at the same time. So in, in asserting this reconciliation, Paul isn't just copying you know, what's, what's talk, what the culture is talking about racism. Instead, he's condemning racism and segregation within religious institutions like the church. Paul further emphasizes this uh, in his other letters when he's describing how human categories of division, like whether they're ethnic or gender or class or nationality, all of these divisions are subsumed under this core theological reality of being fellow image bearers of God through faith in Christ. Through the work of Jesus, the King, true reconciliation can take place where God dwells. The question is, what divisions are, are we inclined to put up in the name of building a home for God or maybe building a nation for God? As Christ's followers, one sign of God dwelling with us is revealed in how we reach across lines of division, whatever they might be. You know, the media loves to throw fuel to this fire by categorizing our neighbors and our friends as uh, progressives versus conservatives or red versus blue, pro-vaccination versus anti-vaccination, real Americans versus immigrants, patriots versus libtards. The categories creep into our church as well. Go, whether you're, are you a mainline Christian or evangelical Christian or are you a progressive Christian? Are you traditional marriage or are you affirming marriage? These, are, these are, aren't categories that are meant to divide God's people. 
A sign of God dwelling with God's people is reconciliation across lines that we are naturally inclined to widen rather than to bridge. When God is at home with God's people, people are reconciled. But they also see and meet people's needs. As Helen read you know, Mark 6.34 for us, here Jesus is the long-awaited king of peace and righteousness who arrives to the world. He's been busy teaching and ministering. And now he's looking for some respite amongst his, with, uh, for, with his disciples. 634, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, so he'd been traveling, he's looking for a place to stay, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. He's searching for rest. Life had been busy. He's just trying to find a quiet place, but he only finds that crowds have gone on ahead of him. Yet he does not retreat behind a security detail and a walled palace. Instead, Jesus is moved with compassion for the needs of those around him. He feeds them. He heals them. He restores them. He transforms them. This king sees people where they're at and moves towards them with compassion. So I wonder if God's people people who profess to follow Christ began to be known in this world through their seeing of others and through their compassion for others, whether the world would recognize God dwelling amongst them. And I wonder if followers of Christ focused more on displaying these uh, signs of reconciliation and these signs of meeting people's needs rather than displaying other kinds of signs on our buildings, on our homes, on our websites and social media, on our t-shirts, on our bumper stickers, whether others would begin to see the God of God's people that we find in Scripture a little more clearly. In Jesus, God has come to dwell with us. And in Jesus, God has come to build a true dwelling place, a true home for God, but also for God's people. We don't build it ourselves. We build it with Jesus, the true and just King. With Jesus, we can build a home worthy of God to dwell and that the world would find joy in and be changed by. This invitation is open for all who would hear, may we trust in Jesus, the King, and build a true dwelling place for God with the people of God that reaches across lines of division, that transforms people's lives, and gives glory to God. Amen.